Well, millions of believers um, around the world, they've used the Apostles' Creed, what we're using to frame uh, a study right, our study right now on Sunday mornings. They've, they've used this creed throughout the centuries to remind themselves of what's at the very heart of Christianity. And this is how we're using this creed as well. And that's one other reason. We've been talking about some reasons we're taking time to, to use the Apostles' Creed as a framework and to look, look at it, study it, learn it. And, and confess it together to this creed and other creeds uh, on occasions, why, why, the, why this is important. And so this brings us to another one of those reasons. We've said this before in this series, but the Apostles' Creed, it's a radical challenge to the thinking, of, uh, the thinking and the values of any culture in which this creed is confessed. It is. It, one, of the, one of those cultural aspects in our own day and time that it challenges is what historians call presentism. Presentism. Talking about the life in the present. And so presentism, it's an attitude towards the past that's dominated by present day attitudes and experiences. Or we could say this, it's the, it's the attitude that all history has been is nothing more than a set of stepping stones to lead us to the present. That's a it's a it's a jaded view of the past. So maybe a, an illustration would be helpful. You have you go to IKEA and you're going to build a piece of furniture from those IKEA parts, and so you get the flat box, and somehow this is going to turn into a dresser. Um, and so you get those instructions out for whatever that weird name of piece of furniture you bought, and you got all those little tools that you'll use one time and throw away, and all those little pieces of hardware. And so you follow those instructions and you finally get this thing together and then the instructions are done, right? I hope you don't hold on to those things. That's just ridiculous. The furniture will not last that long anyway. Um, so, but the, the instructions, they serve their purpose to get you to the present, to get you to have this finished product. And that's, how, that's what we're talking about. That is, that is the contemporary way of looking at the past. It's simply stepping stones to get us here. What matters is here. That's irrelevant now. What happened, what's happened before us. All it did was to get us to where we are presently. And so that's it. And so basically, it's focusing our sole interest on here and now while minimizing the importance of the past or even the future. It's just, it's about present. And so, but the Bible, the Christian faith is not presentist. It, it is deeply rooted and connected to the past. Everything we've been singing about today is about what has happened in the past. That's what we're reading about. And, and it's also looking, and looking forward in hope to the future. That's what we do. And, and so, but evan, evangelicalism, the church today, is eaten up with this. As because, because it's a reflection of the culture in which we live. And so the main focus in so many churches, it's here, it's now. Is this relevant to me today? That's the question. And preachers feed right into this. What does this mean for me now? I need help now. Present day relevance is all that matters. And so that's, that's not to say that we shouldn't live in the present and we should, you know, be stuck in the past. Or, 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 no, we, we're, very, we're in the present. We live now, but we live now in light of then. And we live now in light of things to come. And so we're constantly looking backward and forward. And so the Apostles' Creed, this is one of the reasons I think it's important for us to look at this together and to be reminded of this 1,600-year-old confession of the church, it's this frontal assault on this tendency that we see in the culture and in the church today. 
to, to, to challenge this newer is always better mindset that is, that is persistent. This attitude that's so prevalent. Skepticism about the past. And so it confronts this general distaste that so many Christians have for historic documents like the Apostles' Creed. And so, but positively, that's kind of a negative reason, but positively, what we're, what we're doing when we confess these words, and we'll do this at the end of the message this morning before we sing again, when we confess this creed, one, one writer said, we are joining our voices to this great communal voice that calls out across the centuries from every tribe and tongue. We locate ourselves as part of that community that transcends time and place. It's connecting us with the church that transcends generations, that transcends geography. We're, we're confessing these same words that have been confessed for over 1,600 really years, really, in, in, in some form. We're saying these things are true, and we're, we're adding our voices, confessing the faith of our fathers. And that's a, that's a glorious thing. And, and it's important for us to see. We are not, we are, it is not just now, here, present, right where we are, this location, this time and place. That's not all that matters. We are connected. And this creed helps us remember that. Okay, well, as, I've been, as we've been going through this series, this is our sixth week in this series through the Apostles' Creed. One of the things that's been the hardest for me as we've come to these, each little kind of line in the creed is deciding which biblical texts to use that support the particular statement that we're looking at. And it's not because there are too few texts, it's because there are so many. Um, and so this week, when we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there are dozens of lengthy passages we could go to. There are whole chapters in the Bible that we could look to uh, that address the resurrection of Christ. And so narrowing it down to a single portion of Scripture, that's been a challenge. But what that, is, what that does also say, it's a good reminder that we're, we're not dabbling around the edges of Christianity here as we're in the Apostles' Creed. No, we are, we are looking at and confessing the very heart of it all. And that's why we see so much Scripture. But I've landed here in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, one of these great texts that speaks of the, the importance of Christ crucified, risen. Uh, and so we're going to see that this morning. But before we go there and see this powerful reality of the empty tomb. Uh, let me just say a couple things about a phrase in the creed that causes, has caused some confusion. There's, there's two phrases that if you know nothing about it and you're just kind of reading through it, it can trip you up. And so uh, there are, one of those is the one we'll look at in just a moment. He descended into hell. What is that? What, is that? what are we confessing when we say that Jesus descended into hell? And then the other one is, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. We're going to come to that later. That's not the Roman Catholic Church. That's a lowercase c. It's the holy, the universal church. Not just this local church, but the worldwide, across the generations church that is one body of Christ. But, all right, but this, he descended into hell. And to, to give you a quick summary, I'm going to borrow some words from J.I. Packer. Uh, he has such a concise statement, and, and, and this is affirmed by many others, and but I think it helps us understand why this phrase is in the creed and, and, and why we may tend to kind of choke on it a little bit when we confess it. And it basically, it doesn't have anything to do with the interpretation of Scripture. It has to do with the, the common, uh, the, the contemporary meaning of this word, hell. And so let me just read Packer's short description. This is a paragraph 
in his little book on the Apostles' Creed. He says this, The English is misleading for hell, uh, is, is, excuse me, the English is misleading for hell has changed it since, since the English form of the creed was fixed. Originally, hell meant the place of the departed. As such, corresponding to the Greek Hades and Hebrew Sheol, which we read in Psalm 16 a moment ago. That is what it means here, where the creed echoes Peter's statement that Psalm 16.10, Thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, was a prophecy fulfilled when Jesus rose. But since the 17th century, hell has been used to signify only the state of final retribution for the godless, for which the New Testament name is Gehenna. And that's how we tend to think of hell. We think of that eternal place of wrath. But that's until the 17th century. That's not how that word was used. And so that's the explanation for why this is in the creed. It's not saying Jesus went to that eternal place of wrath. That's not it. He, he went to death. He goes on. What the creed means, however, is that Jesus entered not Gehenna, but Hades. That is, he really died. And that it was from a genuine death, not a simulated one, that he rose. So Jesus went to, through death, just like every single one of us will go through death. We will all go to the place, Sheol, Hades, and, and, and so... But then he came out of there. And so then he explains why this is significant for us. What makes Jesus' entry into Hades important for us is simply the fact that now we can face death knowing that when it comes, we shall not find ourselves alone. He has been there before us and he will see us through. That's why this is a glorious thing for us to confess. I know the wording and the sense that we have of hell today is different, but as we understand this, this is a beautiful thing for us to confess. Jesus has gone through death in all of its, in, in the whole sense of it. Not a little bit, but he's taken on death and he's come out. He's not been abandoned there. And so with that in mind, let's, let's look then at 1 Corinthians 15. <laughs> and so as Howard alluded to, there's a, there's a context behind this chapter. It's not like it's Easter Sunday and Paul's trying to write a, write a message for Resurrection Sunday or something like that. No, Paul is addressing a problem at the, with the church in Corinth there. There was, a, there was a portion of the church that had been heavily influenced by their culture and by false teachers, most likely, and they began to question the truth of the resurrection, that the past resurrection of Christ from the dead and even the future hope of a bodily resurrection for the saints. And so the, the ancient world, it was heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. And, and Greek philosophy really had no use for the body. It, it was all about the soul. The, they taught that the soul was immortal, but the bodies, they're just simply temporary residents for the soul. And they would speak of it as like prison houses for the soul. They, they thought poorly of our physical bodies, what matters is that immaterial part of us is soul. So they rejected any notion of a bodily resurrection. That was a, an abhorrent thought to them. Uh, why would you want to imprison the soul again in the body? Let's let the soul be free. That was their hope. And so this, this prejudice in the ancient world, it was strongly against the gospel that was, that was being preached by the early church. And it, and it did seem to have an impact on the church. And so this is Paul's concern, and it's no small concern for him. So he takes time to write this letter and he writes this extended section to, to affirm again the truth of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus and, and that hope of our own resurrection bodies. 
And so in chapter 15, verse 1, look there again with me. He begins, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. The gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he's saying, here's the gospel. This is the message. The gospel just means good news. It's that message of good news. This is the one Paul preached. This is the one the Corinthians believed. This is the one by which they're saved. And then he goes on in verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So I'll make three kind of broad statements today. First one is this, is that the empty tomb is good news. The empty tomb is good news. He's connecting the gospel, the good news, with the empty tomb. A couple statements under that. This good news, it centers on a person. It centers on Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not about morality. It's not about what we do. It's not about uh, some kind of lifeless religious activity. It's not about a lifestyle. It's not a political leaning. No, it's a message about a person and his work. It's a message about Jesus. That is, that is what this good news centers on. Secondly, the good news is rooted in history. It's rooted in historical facts concerning Jesus. It, the gospel isn't just about having good feelings towards Jesus, like warm fuzzies about Jesus. No, it's, it's not enough to say, and you'll hear people talk like this, and, and, and in our culture, and, and where Jesus is still regarded highly by many, that, 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 that I believe in that, I believe in the Jesus story. And, and so his example of compassion and courage, that's, that's great, that's important to me. But the historicity of the gospel accounts, that's not, that's not, that doesn't matter to me. That's not important to me. We say no, not at all. Here is the essence of the gospel. It's rooted in history. There are these objective facts. And this is what Paul says, Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ was raised from the dead. This is... This is the good news. It's, it's rooted in that. Nobody, and you think about it, nobody really denies the first two. Nobody denies, can honestly say that Jesus didn't exist, that he, didn't, he wasn't uh, killed, that he wasn't buried. Nobody denies it. No serious historians today question that or challenge those assumptions or those statements. There's, there's no events in history that are better attested uh, to than those. As much as by secular uh, sources as Christian sources. Um, <clears throat> and so if you claim those facts aren't true, you can't claim that anything in history is true. And, um, but, but, but the fact that there was a, <clears throat> a good man who lived 2,000 years ago and then he died, that's not good news. That's not good news. That doesn't, that's not a stop the presses kind of story. And the fact that he was a great teacher isn't, isn't really big news. There, were a lot of, there have been a lot of great teachers in the history of the world. The fact that he founded a religion isn't really that big of news. There's, there's other religions that have been founded by other people. The, the fact that he hung on a cross, was crucified, uh, even though he had no fault of, of his own, that's not unique to Jesus. There's, there's one fact that makes Jesus totally unique from all others, and it's this. It's, it's, it, it's the empty tomb. It's the fact that he was raised from the dead. 
uh, A.M. Ramsey said, the gospel without the resurrection is not merely a gospel without its final chapter. It is no gospel at all. <clears throat> and so this gospel, this good news, the empty tomb, it's rooted in history. It's in historical facts. Then, the good news is it's God's answer to our predicament. It's God's answer to our predicament. <clears throat> Why did Christ die? Why did he die? Well, there's three words in our text here. For our sins. For our sins. The gospel, the good news, it makes no sense unless you understand the, the bad news. <clears throat> the gospel is God's answer to man's predicament. To our sin. So God created, as we remember from Genesis, He created this perfect world. He made Adam and Eve to live in this open harmony with Him. And, and yet they disobeyed God in all humanity. All creation has been reeling from the consequences of that ever since. And so now we're born into this world, as Ephesians 2.1 says, dead in our trespasses and our sins. We aren't, we aren't naturally good people who do some bad things on occasion. No, we are, we are really bad people. And we're born this way. And because we're really bad people and God is holy and without sin, we're, we're deserving of His just wrath. And so Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's what we earn by our sin. The most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish have eternal life but perish death eternal death that is that is God's judgment for our sin and so while God is holy and he must punish our sin and 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 he must punish us as sinners he also loves us so God loves us he sent his own son into this world Jesus Christ and and here as we see again in 1 Corinthians 15 this is the gospel that this Christ that God sent he died for our sins he was buried and he was raised on the third day this is his good news his gospel it's God's answer it's God's solution to our predicament our sin and the more we understand how hopeless we are without Christ the more we understand how good this good news truly is <clears throat> And then last, the good news, it's, it's God's idea, and it's, and it's old. It's God's idea from long ago. Look again, Christ died for our sins, what? In accordance with the Scriptures. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. I mean, Psalm 16, a thousand years before uh, Christ um, was raised from the dead, we, we have this prediction, this promise that the Messiah, He would not undergo decay. We looked at Isaiah 53 at Good Friday and, and Easter this, this year. And so 700 years before Jesus was born, God spoke in great detail about, uh, through Isaiah the prophet, that Jesus would come, he would suffer, he would die, he would be raised for our sins. I mean, just read through Isaiah 53 and, and, and rejoice what he has done for us. And so, this, so, so this is it. The empty tomb, it's, it's good news. It is the gospel. There are, there are lots of good stories out there that are make-believe. There are a lot of religious fables that are, that are made up by people. They make us feel better. They can motivate us. They can cheer us on. There's the little engine that could. I mean, there are tons of great stories out there. But we're saying this is true. It's good news. And that's the second thing. The empty tomb, it's good news. And secondly, the empty tomb is true. This is not made up. 
And you see in verses 5 to 8, four times here, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. He appeared to Cephas. He appeared to 500 at the same time. He appeared to James and and to all the apostles. He appeared to Paul last and least of all. (coughs) And so his resurrection was validated by, by many, many witnesses, reliable witnesses, reliable people saw him alive including, again, these large public appearances. So not some, like, mass hallucinations or something like that. This is, these are real people that witness this. This is one of the main proofs that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is true. Now, there are, there are many other proofs that we could look to in Scripture, and we can't linger here, but that, that, that affirm the historicity of the empty tomb, that this is true. But there are things like the predictions of Jesus, Jesus' own words, and they're fulfilled with precision. The moved stone, it was heavily guarded. There's no way somebody could steal this body. The, the empty tomb and the inability to produce a body. The way his grave clothes were laid in the tomb. The, the harmony of the written historical records. You have different authors at different times and from different locations writing without contradiction. You have Sabbath worship, moved to Sunday Worship. So the early church is made up primarily of, of Jewish uh, people. And so their whole lives for generations have been, it's been Saturday, the Sabbath that's been set aside for worship. And then boom, all of a sudden now they're worshiping on the first day of the week. Why? Because he lives. He, the tomb is empty. You have the doubting, deserting apostles. If, if the story was invented by them, they wouldn't make themselves look so skeptical. And unbelieving. You have the birth and the growth of the church. I mean, you and I are evidence that that this is true. And whatever whatever took place in first century Palestine, it changed the world forever. It did. That Jesus was this leader of this this dying, dwindling movement. This movement comprised of uninfluential, unimpressive nobodies, the disciples. And, and, and before the movement ever really got off the ground or gained any momentum, its leader, Jesus, was executed for treason. And his followers deserted in the cause in droves just to save their own skin. And so Christianity lay on the brink of, of total, <coughs> excuse me, total annihilation, extinction. There were zero Twitter followers left on uh, Jesus' uh, account. But in three short days, all of that changed. Everything changed. Three days after his brutal and humiliating death, his burial, those same terrified, disbanded nobodies, they start showing up everywhere, preaching this message of the resurrection, Christ crucified and risen. They're no longer hiding in fear. Now they're willing to suffer publicly and even suffer to the point of death. Because they, they, and you, they wouldn't do this for a lie. No way. But you have these fishermen, farmers, turned into articulate, courageous preachers of the crucified and risen Christ. And this little dying movement, it spilled out of that graveyard into the world. In Acts 17, 6, those early Christians, they were accused in, of, of what? Of turning the world upside down. You, you, have, you have religious leaders, you have priests, the ones who are enemies of Jesus, who are, who are now believing in Him and worshiping Him, the one that they had killed. 
And they're proclaiming His resurrection. In the book of Acts, Luke says that many priests, many of these converted and trusted in Jesus and now proclaimed Him. What happened? What's the change? It's the empty tomb. That's the difference. And, we, and, and what, I'm, what I want you to see is we're not, we don't look inside of ourselves to validate this truth. We don't look inside of ourselves to validate Christianity. There's an old hymn that probably many of you grew up singing like I did. And, and there's a, a line in it. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. Now I'll assume the best intentions of that hymn writer, but that is a terrible line. Um... Looking inside of ourselves is not a defense of the gospel. That's not our defense. You, you never read the apostles doing that. That's not what they're doing. They're always pointing outside of themselves to the empty tomb. They're saying, no, there are witnesses. These things are true. These things really happen. We testify to this truth. This is real. And so God has given us this best possible defense for what we believe and what. It's he raised his son from the dead. And, we, and that settles it for us. And this is why, as we confess these words, we're, we're not looking inside of us for how we feel about Jesus. No, we're looking outside of ourselves and saying, no, this is true. No matter what I feel on the inside, I'm confessing this is truth and I stake my life on it. That's what we're doing. C.S. Lewis, here's the quote. <laughs> you must have saw it in the slides. Not in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, but... He said, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And so you see what he's saying? And the, but this is, this is the kind of the mindset of so many in our day. And I confess, so many that are kind of associated and connected to the church. It's moderately important. No, it's of infinite importance if it's true. And if it's not true, it's of zero importance. And that brings us to the third and last statement. That, that the empty tomb, it changes everything. It changes everything. And Paul shows us this in a, in a kind of an unusual way. He, he does it by playing the devil's advocate. And so he asks this hypothetical question. It's basically, for the sake of argument, what if Christ wasn't raised? What if there is no resurrection? No, no bodily resurrection of Jesus is... What if his body just rotted and decayed in the grave? And then connected to that, what if there's no future resurrection of our own bodies, of the saints? And so he repeats this here several times. If Christ has not been raised, that's this little conditional statement we say. It's one of those if-then statements. If this is true, then this. And there are different kinds of those statements in Greek. And I would just bore you the details of that. But this particular kind of conditional statement, this construction... It's presented, it's presenting this as fact for the sake of argument. He's not saying this is true, but he's saying it's, he's assuming it to be true to make his point. And so if, let's just say, Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then this would be the implications of that. That's what he's doing. So he says, what, what if it's not true? You know, if, verse 12, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That's the first implication. Is if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, our, 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 our message is worthless. Our message is worthless. Our, 
are preaching, verse 14, it's in vain. It's empty. That's the idea of vain. It's void of substance. I mean, I have nothing to tell you this morning from this pulpit. You have nothing to say to one another in, in the context of this assembly. Nothing to sing about this morning if Jesus' body decayed in some Palestinian tomb. Nothing. I'm wasting my breath. You're wasting your time. We should be like sitting in a hammock reading a book or something. This is, it's foolishness. Our message is worthless if this isn't true. And again, some who view the resurrection like it's a Christian myth and has some spiritual lessons to, to teach us. And so they, they love, they like the resurrection story because it's, you know, uh, evil being overcome by good or something like that. But, but we get some little life pointers and moral lessons. But Paul says, no. If he didn't literally, bodily rise from the dead on the third day, then the gospel is not really the power of God and the salvation for all who believe. It is, it is, it is useless. It's powerless. It's vain. It's impotent. This is nothing. That's how, that's how important this is. The second implication, if, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, our, our faith then, if the message is, is worthless, then our faith then becomes pointless. It's pointless. If Christ has not been raised, verse 14, your faith is in vain. It's vain. Same word. It's empty. We're staking our lives on something that did not happen. That's the epitome of vanity. And then he goes in verse 17. Look down there. And he, and he says again, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That's a different adjective from vain. He's not just repeating himself. But futile, the idea, it's useless. So, to illustrate it, <coughs> vain or empty, that would be like unwrapping a birthday gift and then this would be a cruel trick you could play on your kids. Hey, I have a kid that's having a birthday soon. Uh, you, you, you wrap up a present and there's nothing inside and we get a big laugh and uh, that's vain, that's empty. But, but this word here where he says it's futile, your faith is futile, it would be like, it would be like up unwrapping a gift and finding inside a handful of used up batteries that are dead or pins that have no ink in them or gift cards that have no, nothing left on them. Like it's something, but it's, it's useless. It's, it's useless. It, doesn't, it can't do what it was made to do. And so faith, he's saying, it's only as good as the object. And, and so, it's, so some say, I know we hear people like, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe. That's crazy. That's absurd. You can believe with all your heart that you can fly. But you jump off of the SunTrust Plaza and you'll realize that faith is only as good as the object. So, so <coughs> if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then the object of our faith is actually a horrible deceiver. And, and, and therefore our faith is worthless. And then the next thing, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then Christians are frauds. They're frauds. If Christ has not been raised, verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. If there is no resurrection, no bodily resurrection. We're misrepresenting God, or, or we are, some of your translations may say, we're false witnesses of God. If there's no resurrection, then the apostles and those other witnesses that, that He's pointing to, they're, they're not just good, honest folks who with good intentions and sincere motives you know, uh, gave, gave advice that they thought was good but it later turned out to be false. That's not it. No. 
They, they, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the apostles testified against God. They accused him of doing something he did not do. And they would be cons- conspirators, co-conspirators, because their story was consistent. So they would have had to assemble together in some you know, dark room and, and uh, put this plot together and, and, and work this all out if this, if this is the case. It would have been a massive cover-up. Not an innocent mistake. And, and they took their lies, if these were lies, they took them to the grave. They were, they were beaten, they suffered, they were in prison, they were mistreated, they were killed, the apostles, to, to preach, to spread what they thought was a lie if the tomb is still empty, if the tomb was not empty. And so if Christ's body is still in the grave, we are, we are deceivers, to, even today, of the worst kind because we're preaching falsehood next if Christ wasn't raised from the dead then our sin is secure our sin is secure verse 17 if Christ has not been raised your faith is futile and you are still in your sins if Christ isn't who he claimed to be then our sin still stands secure sin won it won over Christ it won over us we sang earlier this morning that sin is stronger uh, but or, 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 but um, our sin was strong. Jesus is strong. Have we already sung that, or was I hearing that in practice? We will sing this. All right. I heard it this morning when I walked in uh, and was singing. Then you will sing this in a little bit. That our our sin was strong, but Jesus is stronger. And, but if that's if this if the, if Christ was not raised, then no our our. Jesus may have been strong. He may have been a good teacher, but our sin was stronger. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. It was the death of... And, and so, so, so his, his, his resurrection was necessary. It was the death of Christ that paid for our sins. We say Jesus paid it all. His, his death in our place. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And so on the cross, he says, it is finished. The debt is paid. Our sins are atoned for. But the resurrection event cannot be separated from the cross event. It cannot. Romans 4.25 He was delivered up to die for our transgressions and He was raised for our justification. That's not saying that the, the resurrection, it accomplishes atonement, but it's testifying to the atonement that was made for us on the cross. And so if there is no resurrection, then that would have testified that there had been no satisfactory atonement made. That's the connection. And so, sin is secure if Christ isn't raised. Next, if Christ wasn't raised, death wins. Death wins. There's no hope beyond the grave for the believer. Verse 18, if Christ has not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for death, who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. They're gone forever. If the tomb is empty, the dead are doomed. There's no hope. I mean, one of the distinguishing marks of the early church and of believers today, it's it's our changed view of death. They see the difference between a a funeral with with Christians, a believer that dies and surrounded by believing family and friends versus if you have an opportunity to go to someone with without Christ and the family doesn't know Christ the difference in view of death for the lost death is the end of everything the adversary that will eventually beat everybody but for the Christian 
It is an enemy, but it, its sting is gone. At the end of this chapter, O oh death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? And so it's still an enemy, but it's a defeated enemy. But if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then every saint, Old Testament to today, would have to suffer in hell forever. If Christ wasn't, been, wasn't raised, how can we be raised? That's his point. And then last, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, Christianity is just a joke. It is. I mean, this is, this is kind of his conclusion. If, if in Christ we have hoped in this life, we have hope in this life only, this is it. We are of all people most to be pitied. I mean, if the tomb is still occupied, Christianity is pointless. It's pathetic. It's pitiable. To to hope in Christ in this life only. To live, to suffer, to, to, to preach, to sacrifice, to labor, to die for a myth. For nothing. If Jesus is dead, then Christianity is a mockery. Because you would have no Christ, you would have no Redeemer, no Savior, no Lord, if that tomb is still occupied. Christ is not raised up, He is not alive, and we are spiritually lifeless. We're living in la-la land, out of touch with reality. And and everyone else in the world is right, and we are dead wrong. That's, That's what He's saying. We're wasting our time, our money, our energy, our sweat our blood on nothing, and we should just, as Paul says, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. That was kind of the thought of the day. And that's, that's right, if the tomb is still occupied. But then he comes back, verse 20. This is where our reading ended. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He has been raised. And he's the first fruits of those who have already fallen asleep, those who've, believers who've died and so we, there, are, there are implications that flow from that. And what we're saying is everything changes. He, he turns all of those um, hypothetical questions on their head. And so you can just see the, 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 all of those negative what-ifs turned into these positive statements. So because Christ has been raised, our message is true. The gospel is true because the empty tomb is true. Because Christ has been raised, our faith is very well grounded. It's not futile. It's not useless. No, we're resting, our trusting in Christ. It's not in vain. He is the right object. Because Christ has been risen, we can know forgiveness of sins. We can be confident that our sins have been paid for. When Jesus came out of that tomb, God was saying to the world that His death had been accepted as an adequate payment for our sins. I mean, if the cost... If the cost of sin is death, and death was not defeated by Christ, then we have reason to wonder if our debt was really paid in full. Maybe he paid part of it, and we have to come up with the rest. But no, if the cost, because the resurrection did occur, our confidence is that all of our sin has been forgiven. He has paid it all, all of it, because it's been taken care of forever. No debt left to be paid. And because Christ is risen, life does have meaning and purpose. It's not futile. We're not to be pitied. The Christian life is, is full, it's, it's meaningful, it's vibrant, it's, it's valid, it's significant, it's abundant, it's, it's enviable. And then last week, because Christ is raised, life does win. Death doesn't get the last word. Our common enemy, death, is going to die. This is glorious news for us, brothers and sisters. And so, so for the believer, we, we, there's 
kind of two parallel realities that flow and connect to us. One is that we are, are risen. We are risen. Ephesians 2 tells us, we don't have time to look there. Ephesians 2, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But he, he comes back around and he says, but God raised us up with him. He has done this. And so as believers, we are alive in Christ through, through the risen Christ. We are connected to Him and we are, we are already risen in Him. And yet there's this also this truth that we will one day raise, or we'll be raised with Him. And there's this hope of this future bodily resurrection. Both of those are realities for the believer. And so that, again, that changes everything for us. There's another, I poked holes in an old hymn earlier, so let me prop up another one now. Um, another hymn that I grew up singing, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Because He Lives, All Fear Is Gone. Because I Know, Oh, 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 He Holds the Future. Life is Worth the Living Just Because He Lives. And so because He lives, because Christ lives, we can face tomorrow. I don't know what your tomorrow looks like. I don't know what your tomorrow holds. I don't know what's on the horizon for you. I don't know what you're dreading or what you're hoping for to come tomorrow, to come in the days and years ahead. But because Jesus is alive, our fear about what is on the horizon should dissipate. Why? Because he has us. He has us. He, he's alive. We have no enemy. Death is dead. Sin is vanquished. In Christ, we've won. Death is dead. Christ is conquered. We sang this earlier. So, so there's this beautiful picture. At the end of the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 3, this, this physically resurrected Christ in his body, not some ethereal spirit floating around, not ghost Jesus. No, the resurrected Christ, bodily form. He says, to the, to, says this to John, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. It's a beautiful picture. The beautiful invitation, the resurrected bodily Jesus, he continues to extend this invitation to us today. Open the door, open the door by faith, trusting in me, resting in me, and I will come in and not give you a list of things that you have to do. Open the door and I will come in, not, not critique you how you've lived up to this point. Open the door and I will come in and not, not with the, all the should, you should haves and you, should have, you shouldn't haves. No, I will come in and I will dine with you. I will come in and sit down and eat. He says that to us. And so believer, listen to me. You have not out His grace. You have not. The invitation is open to you because the risen Christ's blood has been shed for you and, and, and His righteousness has been imputed to you. And so this invitation stands. Come, <coughs> open the door. I will come in. I will dine. I will eat. And if you are not in Christ, listen to me, you have not out grace either. You have not. Jesus said, John 11, 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and life who Ever. You know what that means? Whoever. No matter what you've done, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ, who hasn't known this grace that so many of us in here have experienced and, and can testify to, I pray that today might be their day of salvation and that they would call out to you confess their sin and confess their inability to 
to, to, to stand before you on their own merit and would say, oh, it's, it's, I need Christ. I need, his, I need Him. I need what He's done for me in my place on the cross through this resurrection and that they would be saved today, brought from death to life. And for us who are in Christ, that we would see the, the open arms of our Lord inviting us to come and dine and eat. And we wouldn't see um, Him stiff-arming us and keeping us away, but we would, we would come confessing our sin and clinging to uh, the righteousness of another of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so help us to, to, to hold these realities uh, tightly to today by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.